Leaving all the windows open We don't even mind the rain Or where we let You're listening to KTOO News Juno, 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. Each month, seven Juno locals tell a seven-minute story based on a theme. November's theme was Uncharted Territory. The stories you're about to hear were told at Kunikiti Northern Light United Church on November 8, 2022. Co-hosts for the evening were David Noon and Jeff Smith. Donations went to the Juno Refugee Relief Fund. Music was performed by Taylor Vidic. All right, folks, our first storyteller is Laura Kraus. Reverend Dr. Laura Kraus arrived in Juneau nine weeks ago. She's the interim pastor of Kenethedi Northern Light United Church, meaning she will be here for about a year until a permanent person is chosen. Laura has officiated at hundreds of weddings. Her favorite wedding is still her own, which she will tell us about in her mudroom story tonight. Please welcome Laura. Rumor, James V of Scotland rode a horse up the aisle. Fact, in 1538, he and Mary of Guise married in the St. Andrew's Cathedral in St. Andrew's, Scotland. Fact, 25 years later, the great reformer John Knox brought the house down, literally, for he incited one Sunday morning a mob to go to the cathedral, and they started the destruction. Lightning soon arrived and burnt the roof, and all crumbled. And soon it became a free quarry for anyone who needed building supplies in St. Andrews. My birth story, to be honest, is really boring. I was supposed to be born in Cameroon, Africa. Now that would have been exciting because I would have followed in the footsteps of my brothers and even my father. But no, I followed in the footsteps of my older sister, born in suburban hospital, Oak Park, Illinois. <sighs> There was no way that my wedding was going to be ordinary. But I had a problem. You guessed it. I had no lover. <laughs> then I went to divinity school at St. Mary's College in St. Andrews, Scotland. And one winter day, descending the dean's court stone circular stairways was Reinhardt Krauss. People, I fell hard for that man. <laughs> At that moment, within a week, I had asked him for chess lessons. <laughs> and then on February 29th, I did something that all we women have the right to do I asked him to marry me. 
really? But yes. He said yes, but the next morning he woke up in a true panic and took his best friend, his Charles from South Africa, and they walked the strand of St. Andrews together. He did return and accepted my proposal, thank goodness, but the courtship was short, but the engagement much longer as we tried to plan a wedding. Because we were both doctoral students and we had gone from our emotion to our head and we couldn't decide where to marry, could we go to America? No way, Reagan had just been elected. <laughs> Would we go to Germany, to Reinhardt's home? No way, I knew three words of German. So where, when, where, when, where, when? Charles said, just decide, you're driving us all mad. At that moment, from Reinhardt's three-story bedroom window, we both looked and pointed and said, there. There being the land between Dean's Court and the North Sea. There being the roofless, three wallless structures of a ruin of a cathedral. There where nobody gets married because the sky in St. Andrews is much like my September and October here. It rains, it's cold, and it's windy. But we decided. And where we decided to marry, we asked around and nobody had ever known anybody who gotten married there. We didn't even know how to approach for permission but finally, someone let us in. And then we wrote the most formal letter we've ever written in our entire lives to the National Trust of Scotland and begged for the right to marry. We waited months and more months until a formal reply came back. And it said, are you nuts? <laughs> but we have one stipulation you allow any tourist who wishes to attend your wedding to do so. <laughs> so then became permission for Reinhardt needed to ask his employer, the German Church of Fouts, to allow him to marry me. You heard me right. Again, a classified letter went with many forms to Germany. And months later, the reply came, I, Laura Gregg, had permission to become a future pastor's future wife. It was okay. So my wedding dress, there's no way it was coming off the rack, people. I created a bespoke, upscale dress. I wrote to California and got my grandmother's 100-year-old blouse, took the lace out, went to London, Lloyd's of, I mean, sorry, not Lloyd's of London, <laughs> Liberty of London, and got yards and yards and yards of raw silk and sewed my wedding dress in Wales at my sister's mother-in-law's house. I was pleased as punch until just before the wedding, I tried it on and I noticed some sewing oil on it. 
And I took it to the cleaners, and I came back and tried it on, and the, either the cleaners had shrunk it or had I gained some weight. The wedding dress was perfect. Frau Kraus, my future mother-in-law, did not do the American thing of one or two or three tiered cakes, no. In three weeks' time, she baked 30, 30 cakes, 30 cakes. And so, let me say, it's a fact that Reinhard Kraus and Laura Gregg got married on June 15, 1985. The sky was blue, and then we felt raindrops going up that long aisle, and then the sunshine as we took our vows. Fact, it was the second wedding in 500 years, and Reinhardt and I are in our 37th year of bliss. And rumor is that now, the ruins of St. Andrew's Cathedral is one of the most popular places for Scots and foreigners alike to marry. Uh, one of our board members, Rich Moniak, is our next uh, storyteller. In 2006, uh, Rich became a peace activist while his son was on his second deployment in Iraq along with being involved with Juno Peace Groups. He helped organize the state chapter of Military Families Speaks Out, uh, which led to his participation in two actions in Fairbanks. It also asked him to serve on citizens' hearing panels for a Fort Lewis officer who refused orders to deploy in Iraq. At those events, Rich got to know a prominent member of a woman-led grassroots peace group known as Code Pink in 2009, she invited him to join a 60-person peace delegation to Gaza. His story tonight is about the first part of that journey. Welcome to the stage, uh, storyboard member Rich Moniak. So Gaza is not a place that's on anybody's bucket list. The Palestinian territory is a narrow strip located between Egypt, Israel, and the Mediterranean Sea. It's controlled by Hamas, which is uh, designated a terrorist organization. After the 2009 war they had with Israel, supplies and materials into Gaza were severely restricted. Even toys were not allowed in. Part of our mission was to bring some toys in. Fortunately, I had help from Judith Meyer and the congregation at Aldersgate Methodist Church to round up 32 deflated soccer balls in a pump and stuffed them in a huge duffel bag. But before I could go, I needed to get a passport. Because you see, I'd never been out of the country before. Well, I'd been to Canada, but that was before passports were required. And our northern neighbors are not exactly a foreign country. Gaza is on the other side of the world. And getting there isn't easy. In fact, the airport didn't exist anymore. It had been destroyed several years earlier. So the plan was we were supposed to fly into Cairo and meet, take chartered buses 240 miles across the Sinai Peninsula, enter Gaza through the border at Rafah, and return to Cairo a week later. Aside from making our airline reservations, Code Pink did all, all of the arrangements. My assigned roommate for this trip 
was a retired school teacher from New York City named Ted. Now, Ted had been to uh, Palestine several times. I didn't tell him I'd never been out of America, but I did plan my trip, my, my reservations, around meeting him at the airport in Cairo. So on the last day of May, I flew from here to Seattle in the afternoon, took an overnight flight to London, which I barely slept through, got there and found my flight to Cairo was delayed. I went from a three-hour scheduled layover to seven. By the time I got to Cairo, it was past midnight. Ted was long gone, and I was exhausted. I anxiously cleared through customs, picked up my luggage, exchanged some American dollars for some um, British or Egyptian pounds, looked for the um, directions to ground transportation and followed that out of the terminal, where I met a guy who was anxious to put somebody in his cab, and I was anxious to go. I gave him a piece of paper with the hotel name and an address, and he said to me, that'll cost 80 pounds. Well, I knew it was supposed to cost 60, so I offered 60, and he turned around and started to walk away. All right, all right, 80 pounds. He came back, he grabbed the duffel bag and, and walked me to a waiting cab, and the driver got out and put the duffel bag and another suitcase I had into the, into the trunk. I got in the back seat with a backpack, and off we were to Cairo. Along the way, the driver started pointing out landmarks. At least that's what I think he was doing, because I didn't understand a word of Arabic. And when I spoke English to him, I knew he didn't understand me either. So it was a pretty uneventful drive until we got to the city, which I wasn't paying much attention to. It was just a big maze of a big city. And, but at some point, I started to get the feeling we were going in circles. He was making right turns at every intersection. And I started to notice storefronts that I'd already seen before. You know, I thought he was lost, except he was in the same block. Eventually, he pulled over and parked next to a uh, parked car. I started to get out, but he turned around and shook his head and directed me to stay put. With the car running, he got out and closed the door. And he started walking down the street. And he kept walking. And he got to the intersection. And much to my dismay, he turned the corner and disappeared. <laughs> now, I didn't know what I was going to do next. I thought about the options I had, and absolutely none of them were good. I sat there for what felt like 30 minutes. I was probably only 10. And from behind me, the driver came back and jumped in the car and drove off. He went up to the intersection, made a right turn, made a right turn to the next intersection, and did that two more times. And we were almost back to the same spot when he pulled over next to an alley. And he pointed to it with a big smile on his face. So we both got out, walked to the back of the car. He put my luggage on the, on the ground. I gave him two 50-pound bills. And I said, tried to tell him he could keep the change. I reached for the, the soccer balls, but he put his foot on the bag and he started yelling at me. And then he got on the phone and he started yelling at whoever he was talking to over there. Then he handed me the phone. And the next thing I heard was, what are you doing to my driver? I told you it was 80 pounds. Well, I gave him 100. No, you gave him 100 piastas. 100 what? I had no idea what a piasta was. He explained to me, it's like a penny. I gave the phone back to the driver and looked at my wallet. I had a couple of 10s, a 20, and a bunch of 200 pound bills. 
I gave him one of those, hoping it wasn't 200 piastres. And he did what Harry Chapin said you should do. He stuffed a bill in his shirt. I started to pick up my bags, thinking I should, he should get, get some change. But before I could even get my bags, he grabbed them. And I got no change. And I wasn't going to argue with him, because I knew he wouldn't understand me. And he kind of got me to follow him down the alley. And we got to this inconspicuous hotel entrance. We walked in there, walked up to this, this really old elevator with a gate that crawled up to the third floor. We walked out into the lobby, and I went to the desk and started checking in. The driver stood next to me the whole time, holding my bags. When I finished checking in, I turned to reach for the bags. And he stepped back, and he said something to the clerk, and the clerk replied to him in Arabic. And then he said to me in English, He's waiting for a tip. Well, now I had somebody who could understand me arguing. I just gave him 200 pounds for an 80-pound fare. The clerk said something to the driver. The driver put his head down, dropped the bags, and left. The next morning, I told Ted that story, and he laughed. But knowing it was the first time I'd been out of the country, he decided to be my big brother the whole trip. First thing he did was he took me to the Natural History Museum in Cairo, we took taxi cabs out to Giza to see the pyramids and the Sphinx. Out there, he showed me the other side of his Big Brother Act. He um, helped me get trapped into paying for an uh, opportunity to sit on a camel for a stupid picture. <laughs> then he showed me how to walk away from a taxi driver who tried to take advantage of American tourists. And when we finally got to Gaza, he kept me out of trouble the whole time. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Carol Bookless. Carol has earned her living through sailing, construction, research, and teaching, and has spent half her life as a mom. She has hiked and biked across six continents before settling in the north. She likes to create and fix things, and from time to time, she gets an urge to travel and see different worlds. Please welcome Carol. So this story has to do with uncharted territory, and it fits that category in a couple of ways. So one way is that I decided to take a hike on the Denicho when I was about 60. And when you get about 60, you start to think about, I'm getting old. And I started to worry about, could I still do hikes and adventures? Was my body going to fall apart? Was I mentally still tough? That kind of thing. So that's why I wanted to go on the Dendicho Trail. It's about a 50-mile hike. It uh, goes from Ross River to Pharaoh in the Yukon. It's a traditional route that the Casca people took to get from those two towns. And um, it's been used for thousands of years. The town of Ross River and Faro decided to put four little cabins along the route, trying to build up tourism. It didn't really work. So hardly anyone hikes this trail. I knew that if I hiked on it, I would be by myself. So I decided to do it for my 60th birthday. So the first night I stayed in Faro, and I stayed in a campground, and there was this little fox who would, I called him the campground host, because he came in and he would check me out every day. I would look at him, 
and then he'd walk away, and I knew I'd see him the next day. So that's how I started out my hike, by getting acquainted with some of the animals that were going to be on this trip. And someone asked me, why would you want to hike? And those people who do hike, they already know why. But if you don't hike, it's nice to just have that movement and to be in nature and to see all the animals, to smell the, the pine, and to get dirty. Poop in the woods and just relax. Wear dirty clothes the whole time if you want. Anything you want to do. And because no one else was going to be on that trail, I knew I could do whatever I darn well pleased. So I started out the trail, and I just barely missed a bear, which I didn't know at the time, thank goodness. And the first part of the trail ended up being really swampy. And those of you who've hiked around Juneau know that you try to walk on the high parts for as long as you can, and then you find out there are no more high parts. So I just got used to the fact that I was going to have to get wet boots and just keep going. The next thing that happened was, I got swooped by this big bird. And I think it had to be like a golden eagle. It was way bigger than a raven. And um, then I started to think, should I really be here? Is this somebody telling me that I shouldn't be here? And I kept walking, though, because I didn't want to turn back. There was a bear back there. <laughs> and anyway, so I kept hiking and ended up getting to the first cabin when it just started pouring rain. I was exhausted. I thought maybe I was lost because I, that cabin shouldn't have been that far away. And um, just fell asleep exhausted. I was totally done with wa my water. And luckily I put some pots underneath the eaves of the cabin to have water for the next day. The next day was sunny and beautiful. And I hiked past a couple of lakes and went to this cabin that had a whole bunch of wasps. Well, what was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to camp and stay with these wasps? Or was I supposed to go find someone else, somewhere else to camp, like maybe in the outhouse? I decided to stay with the wasps. And the wasps would come in, buzz, 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 buzz. I'd let them out. They'd be gone. And about 10 minutes later, again, buzz, 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 buzz. And this went on most of the night until the wolves started howling. And I kept telling myself, wolves don't bother people. Wolves don't bother people. Anyway, so they didn't bother me. And the next day, I started out again. And I ended up having a few more adventures with mile-high hills that never stopped and losing the trail and bugs, bugs, bugs everywhere. If you've ever hiked in the Yukon, you know that's what it is. And then... I got to the third cabin eventually, and, and then the last cabin, I was starting to feel a little maudlin about my trip, my trip almost being over. So I was singing my way away from the cabin, and I came to this upper edge of a hill to this beautiful big raspberry patch. I thought, all right, I can eat lots of raspberries. And then I noticed on my feet, there was a big pile of bear poop fresh, steamy bear poop. And I said, I think there's a bear around here. So I rushed out of there, went to the forest. Then the next thing I saw was a chain link fence along the side of the Pelly River. And I knew I was almost done. But at that time, it was sunny, a wind was blowing, 
It was, there were no bugs, and I started hearing chanting. And I said, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm going into to Ross River, and there's some kind of celebration going on. So I listened to this chanting for a while. I went down to Ross River, and I asked them, what's going on, you know? Is there some kind of celebration? And they told me, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? And I said, well, I thought I heard chanting. And they said, you wouldn't have been able to hear chanting up on the hill if we were chanting down here. And so I thought it was a bit strange, but it also made me think of the way I grew up. My grandfather was born in Siberia over a century ago. He was a Christian, but he was also an animist. And animists believe that animals and plants and rocks and everything has a spirit. And he told us that in our front yard, one of our trees had a man living in it. And so he's my grandfather, so I believed him. And sometimes I would think that man would be like a mean person. So when I climbed the tree, I would think, is that man gonna kick me out of the tree? Am I gonna get hurt? And then other times when I was really afraid, I thought that man is gonna help me out. And so that's kind of how I view nature. And that's kind of how I view that chanting. I think that all of those animals and the whole Yukon and all of that has a spirit. And I think that's what I heard as I was leaving that trail. Uh, our next storyteller, Andrei Pomignani, uh, representing his family and the Ukrainian refugees in Juneau tonight. He and his family just arrived to Juneau, as you heard earlier, at the end of September. He wants to share his story about his journey to Juneau tonight and how he's feeling as a new member of our community. Welcome to the stage, Andre. Uh, hi, everybody. And uh, I first of all apologize for my English. It's not my native language. I use it only for months for everyday speaking. And uh, I want to share with you uh, how Ukrainian people feel. I think all of you know that February uh, changed uh, every Ukrainian's life. It's like separate before and after. And uh, uh, my family not as exception from these uh, things. We wake up at 5 uh, a.m. Uh, from uh, sound of explosion. Uh, we live in Kiev, it's the capital of Ukraine. It's 5.5 million people here. And you know, uh, everybody was afraid in this morning and uh, our life uh, never back again. Everybody thinks that it uh, must be something unusual in uh, 20th century, uh, 21, 21th century, yeah? And it's impossible to uh, war come into your house. And uh, it's like a nightmare for us because every shops and uh, every usual uh, life, uh, what we uh, usually doing, it stops and uh, never come back. And you know, it's a very hard decision for every Ukrainian what doing next, uh, next step. And a lot of Ukrainians lost uh, their relatives. And unfortunately, my family in this list too. Uh, when uh, my parents uh, are going from the 
occupation territory. During the green safety corridor, uh, they was on the fire and my mother was uh, dead and my father was uh, really hurt. And uh, it, it was a uh, uh, last point to our decision that we don't uh, feel safety now in Ukraine, even in capital of Ukraine, because during the first uh, maybe day or two or three, it was like a ghost city. Uh, maybe a lot of people leave Kiev, I think maybe 80 or 90 percent going from Kiev. And uh, after first months of this uh, war, we uh, just decide to leave, uh, also leave not even Kiev, we decide to leave Ukraine. And my brave wife and uh, our children go uh, very far in Europe. We choose Ireland because Ireland is very far and uh, uh, it's like an English speaker country. Uh, and uh, I stay in Ukraine to help my father with his uh, health. And I can uh, uh, join to my family only in the uh, middle of summer. Uh, you, you just imagine when you escape uh, by the uh, emergency train, uh, you must take only the stuff you can carry on your backpack and that's all. Just imagine that you must pack in a little, uh, small, small bag what uh, all your life. And uh, it was a very hard decision what exactly you want to pack. And you don't know, do, will you come back in your house? It was a very uh, sad uh, story, but uh, Ireland is, was a very good country. Uh, it was welcome for us and uh, we thanks uh, for Ireland. But it's not so big uh, possibility to job and to live here. And we uh, decide to move on and uh, we looking for any possibility to come here in United States. Uh, and uh, now it's a happy <laughs> part of my story because uh, there is a circle of people, community, uh, that uh, believe in our family that we need this help and uh, welcome uh, us here to Juno. And uh, when uh, we understand that we can uh, come here, we was very, very glad. And, uh, you know, our time in Ireland uh, was like an uh, adaptation period uh, because, uh, you know, maybe some of you know that it's rather coldy and uh, wet country. <laughs> Uh, we have like uh, really it's like adaptation period for us we, when we come here it was a very big surprise uh, your weather in uh, September and October uh, even we are glad for this and uh, you know when we come here only here only in Juno we can unpack all our stuffs because during uh, uh, from March till September, we live uh, only with uh, small uh, stuffs. We don't have uh, a lot of stuffs because we don't know how long we can stay on one place. It was very hard. But only here, only in Juno, uh, we can uh, have uh, our home 
uh, not even house, uh, we're feeling like a home here. Uh, with uh, your help, with your uh, warm of your heart, with your time uh, that you give us. And uh, we're very grateful for all uh, people that uh, donate uh, your money, your furniture, your uh, time, because it's a lot of paperwork and it's a lot of uh, uh, things that uh, our sponsors doing for us. Uh, we feel safety, we feel uh, like at home and it's a very amazing place. You are great people and I want to say you Thank you, uh, and I want to say that Juno is a very good place with a lot of possibility. If you look around, you can see the native nature. You can breathe the fresh air, you can drink very good water, and this is a treasure. I want to share this with, with you, that it's uh, like a present for us, and. It's a very good place to live. <laughs> Thank you. Salvation is coming in the morning And now what we need Is a little rain on our... You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. This is Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. These stories were told on November 8th, 2022 on the theme, Uncharted Territory. Ho, ho, ho! The holidays are coming! Our December show is on December 13th on the theme, Holiday Hullabaloo. Sign up to tell a story on our website, mudrooms.org. Until we find ourselves shelter again And we won't settle for the side so our next storyteller is KJ Metcalf. And does anybody have any good facts about KJ? Just yell them out. She's from Angoon. He swims at the pool. Volunteers and cooks at the Glory Hall for decades. Very witty, intelligent, I've been told. Good looking. Uh, please welcome KJ. Well, this is uh, totally unrehearsed, so you're going to have to cut me some slack. It starts with Conrad Lorenz, who was a um, biologist when biology was just uh, coming into the new era. And he wrote a book, King Solomon's Rings. And it was about the ability of animals to bond with whoever raises them. And I thought about that, and I said, I'm going to do that. And so we lived on North Douglas at the time, very light traffic. Uh, we lived on the beach and got two goslings, two Emdens, and I raised them, and I bonded with them. I taught them to swim. I even taught them to fly. <laughs> and the way I did that is... A brisk wind blowing up the channel and they would come after me I would run and they would be right there and one of them spread its wings and all of a sudden it was about 12 feet up in the air and it just panicked <laughs> and quit flying so uh, that's as good as I could do but 
I would put waders on and I would take them out and uh, this went on for a couple of years and um, an eagle took one of them and so we had to get another goose and uh, these geese loved me. We were buds and they hated my wife. <laughs> so Bruce Morley and Judy live out in North Douglas, some of you know, they raise a lot of animals and they wanted some geese. So these two geese um, had about seven goslings. And um, the thing about geese is they can count to three, but anything over that doesn't exist. So got down to three goslings. So I thought, well, I'll... I'll take these out to Morley's. And I said, it's not going to be a good idea if they see me. So I did what any Alaskan man would do. I put on a wig, a hat, and a dress. <laughs> I went into their pen and collected the, the goslings, and they were panicked. And I hated to do it, but it was necessary. We couldn't keep that many geese. They were just angry, shocked. So I carried the goslings up, took my outfit off, and went in, and Peggy, my wife, said, well, how did it go? And I said, oh, fine. And she said, what's my dress and hat doing? And I said, well, I had to wear those so they wouldn't know it was me. And she said, you did what? And... She, after that, she always carried a purse with a long strap because when they came after her, she would swing that purse <laughs> and defend herself. These geese would migrate uh, during the day. They'd go up Douglas or down Douglas. And we came home one day, and I'd call them, and they'd always answer me, and I'd find out where they were, and I'd call them home. And I called, and they were across the street on a porch, and they had a woman cornered in this little uh, shed, and she opened the door when I was calling, and she waved. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. And I called the geese, and they came. And I took her some fresh eggs and apologized. And she said, oh, it's just, it was just fine. I was only in there for about an hour. Rosalie Walker, some of you remember her, was a council member. And uh, those geese became notorious. And she, on the council, suggested that the city of Juneau pass a leash law for geese. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, our next storyteller is Rachel Skywalker. Rachel is coming up on her 10-year Juneauversary. Spent the pandemic, however, in the Virgin Islands, unlike all of you, uh, getting her captain's license uh, where in the Virgin Islands. She discovered uh, she's part mermaid, part pirate, but all gypsy. She's happy to be home on her boat this winter and skiing Eagle Crest with all of her wonderful friends. Welcome to the stage, Rachel Skywalker. So my story starts with a man named Valentine Ripley, and he's a really great guy. He was my landlord in rural Appalachia when I was two years old. 
He was a merchant marine, a World War II veteran, and um, a union organizer, a really great guy. He also gave my mom, who was single at the time and struggling quite financially, a break on the rent pretty much all the time. He became monumentally important in my life. He, at the age of three, got me a subscription to National Geographic. Not the kids' version, the full version, which inspired me to dream, to want to devour the world and experience it fully. I remember him picking me up in elementary school for doctor's appointments. He'd put me in the shotgun seat and hand me a map. And he'd say, where's your doctor's office? I'm eight years old and looking at this map and I have no idea. So um, we moved away, we came up to Alaska. From then he would like send me letters, like snippets of articles he thought might inspire me. And I just kept dreaming. And in my teenage years, it was pretty tricky. Uh, my mom was experiencing some pretty severe mental health issues. So I ended up in the system, foster care and passing around like different relatives and like in and out of couch surfing situations. So I graduated high school, I eked that out, technically homeless. But from there, I turned my nose up at a full ride to a small liberal arts school and ended up in New Zealand. New Zealand's beautiful, it's like Alaska. In fact, if you jump out of a plane at 14,000 feet on the west coast of the South Island, you will see the spine of the Southern Alps that are beautiful and snow covered. Then you see temperate rainforests, glaciers, rivers, sounds familiar, right? And then black sand beaches, absolutely incredible. So from there, I got a job as a lifty on a ski resort and just became an absolute ski bum. And this is where I got my first taste of like actual travel, because New Zealand for me represented kind of escape from the violence and instability of my childhood, and it represented this bucolic, easy, beautiful existence. I was just transported into a wonderful life. But I was craving adventure. So my friends were all going to Southeast Asia, and I said, I want to travel. I've saved up a little bit. Like, this sounds like an awesome plan. So I'm in Laos. I'm in Vietnam. I'm doing everything I wanted to do. I'm swiping my debit card all over the place. And I see Angkor Wat for the first time, and it's absolutely majestic. Float down the river in Laos. Um, eat my way through Koh Sound Road and Bangkok, and then find myself back in Cambodia. And I go to take some money out of the ATM, and I get a decline. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> my friends that were traveling, you know, they all had like kind of parents funding a little extra here and there, or a backup card, or a backup plan in general, but I did not. So I had run out of money dry to the dollar in Phnom Penh. I met a beautiful Khmer family that helped me make a collect call back to Roanoke, Virginia, where my childhood best friend graciously decided to wire me $300 in exchange for my Seafoam Green uh, 1960s reissue Stratocaster made in Japan, which I believe was worth about three times that at the time. <laughs> so I've got 300 bucks and a dream and a plan. Um, I met a really beautiful woman named Susan when I was rock climbing in West Raleigh Beach, learning to leap climb. She was married to a Thai guy and she was from Rome originally. And she said, you know, if you can get to Italy, you'll definitely get a job. There's so many jobs under the table. So I take the $300 and I get myself back to Bangkok, Bangkok to Gatwick, Gatwick to Rome. And I find myself in Rome. And at this point, that $300 is more like $85. <laughs> and I change it into Euro. And even though it should be like a good exchange rate, it's not. I have like 30 Euro at this point. So it's all I have to my name with no help back home. I find myself on a train into the city and I take a 10 Euro note and I put it into the ticket dispenser. And it says at the top, no Cambio. My language skills are amazing now, but back then I had no idea what that meant. Apparently it means no change. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a 20-year note left, and I'm kind of terrified. I don't know, it's a daunting prospect to be in a foreign country running out of money with no backup financial support. But um, I make it to 
where I think is the hostel, but I'm completely lost. And this Italian guy comes up to me and he's speaking to me in rapid fire Italian, trying to help, obviously. And he asked me what station I had come from. I said, Vietato Fumare. And he kind of shook his hand at me and <laughs> looked at me a little funny. He said, what station? He's trying to help me. Vietato Fumare, which means it is prohibited to smoke. <laughs> So eventually, after much like exhaustion and aim, I go to the hostel and I beg for any job that they have so that I can like stay there for free. And they're like, yeah, you can like clean the toilets and make the beds, or we have like a night managing position available. And I jumped on that. So I had a job already within like the first five minutes of landing in Rome. And then I heard that you could sell tours of the Vatican and the Colosseum and run pub crawls. Like that's a lot of fun. So I show up the next day to St. Peter's Basilica and there's a company called Win in Rome Tours. They've got red umbrellas. I find them, I tell them that I know Susan, I met her in Thailand, she said, you might have a job for me. <laughs> and they did, and they said, but you can't start today because tomorrow is a free day at the Vatican. So we have a job for you, but you have to come back tomorrow. So I'm hungry, I haven't eaten in like a day and a half. Um, and I've wandered to a market, and as an American, like 19 year old girl, I pick out a baguette for like a euro and a half and a giant tub of peanut butter with an American flag on it. <laughs> And like, this will do. So I bring it back to my hostel, kind of with my tail between my legs. I've got like seven euro left at this point. And I go for a walk and a couple blocks from my hostel, there was a kind of open air market. And I saw this like gilded gold frame. And I go to pick it up and it's wooden, it's spray painted gold. And I got this bright idea. If it's a free day at the Vatican tomorrow, I could bring this frame to St. Peter's Basilica. And I could like harass tourists in taking their picture in the frame with the basilica in the background and they would give me a couple euro. And that's how I would make money to get me through the week. So I show up at the Basilica the next day. I've got my frame. I'm super excited. I'm wearing one of those like two, early 2008 like bubble dresses. It has like the hem where the pockets go all the way down. And I start like kind of hawking at people like, hey, come take a picture in the frame. And it's like a giant success. Like people are lining up. They're getting excited. I have all this momentum and I'm making like euros. Like every euro I make is two US dollars. It's amazing. I've got a dress full of euros. I'm super excited. I turn around to talk to a Canadian couple and the frame disappears. This guy just grabs it and like runs down the road. And I'm horrified. Like this is my like way to make money. This is smashing the days, like there's hours left in the day. My dress is heavy with coins. And I run after him, I'm screaming. And the coins are flying out of my dress like all over the square. And I give up, he's just like disappears in the distance. Long story long, it took me a long time to figure out what that was about. Um, I spent a lot of time in Rome. I made lots of really great friends and I was making so much money, like more money than I'd ever had in my life, like doctor money. Like, so I was feeling high on life. And a couple months later, I was out with some friends and telling the story. And I was like, that frame. <laughs> and everyone just kind of laughed at me, like this knowing look. And I felt like that was like not in on the joke. Anyway, later that week, somebody came up to me as I was selling tours of the Vatican at St. Peter's Basilica. And they were speaking to me in rapid fire Italian. And I didn't understand what they were saying, but they were like, frame, 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 Western Union, <laughs> go to Western Union. And okay, go to Western Union. There's a million Western Unions all over the city. But that day I was heading back to the metro. It was really far from where I lived. So I'm walking like a very long distance. And I pass a Western Union. I go inside and I'm like, do you guys have a frame? <laughs> and they look at me like I'm ridiculous. And so there's no frame. I walk away and this lady runs after me and she's got my frame in her hand. And I get my frame back and I walk back to my like beautiful apartment, like on my veranda and my upstairs no one a neighbor has made like delicious hand-pulled pasta and my life is just beautiful. And I sit down with the frame and I put it in my bedroom and 
I have a friend come over that night and she joins us for dinner and I tell her the story about the frame and this big mystery. And she laughs and said, Rachel, oh my gosh, you've been here, what, seven months? Don't you know, like, in Rome, the mafia run, everything. You went to the busiest tourist hub in all of Rome. Your company, Win in Rome Tours, is, like, not a legitimate company. They pay off the Caribbean area. They pay off the Russian mob. They pay off the Jewish mob. Everyone's selling water. There's just this hierarchy. And you came to, like, the busiest mafia intersection. There's <laughs> Vatican. There's Rome. There's, like, so many different things happening. And that was just a message, like, don't, you can't just come and, like, make a bunch of money and, like, not share. <laughs> So anyway, I think one of the most beautiful things about traveling is when you go somewhere, you're completely blind. Like, you, know, you throw yourself in this new scenario, and all of a sudden, the landscape becomes like a language that you speak, like the, the culture, the weather, everything. And after 10 years in Juneau, it feels that way, too. You know, I feel like I finally get it. <laughs> and um, I'm so happy to be part of such a beautiful community and know so many of you. And it's good to find a place that's my forever home. Uh, our next and last storyteller is Eric, Eric Ravsky. He is a recovering journalist and honing his baking skills. Most nights he can be found working long hours in the dough den known as Wild Oven. When he escapes into the woods, water, or mountains, he prefers to go as far and as fast as possible with his friends or by himself. Please welcome Eric. I recognize the figure on the right as he threw his head back in an unmistakable laugh. There wasn't any sound, but it's just one of, those, one of those movements you can tell somebody's enjoying something. I recognized the figure on the right, or sorry, on the left as well, and she was chiding a figure that was in between them. It was a beautiful sun breaking in the clouds, almost like a halo as it lit up the beautiful blue of a freshly washed exit glacier. The trio started to turn and make their way through another braid in the river. And at this point, I could see in the figure in the center that the face was a bit bloody, and the jacket and pants were shredded like they had just slid down a zester. I was watching from the road, perhaps from a car, a bike, I'm not entirely sure. And as the trio turned back towards me, I realized that something was terribly wrong. Because the figure on the right was my grandfather, who had died when I was in elementary school. And the figure on the left was my grandmother, who had died the year before. And as the figure in the center raised their head, I locked eyes with myself. And under myself, the version that I was watching, even though it was about a half mile away, under their breath, I could hear them whisper, you idiot. I guess I should rewind a little bit. It was my first year up in Alaska, uh, also about 10 years ago, into my uncharted territory. I had always wanted to go, and a friend said it was a good idea, so I jumped at the chance to come up and be a photography guide. As I said, I was a recovering journalist. I was trying to get out of it. And I had decided that uh, after my summer up here, which was one of the sunniest on record, I didn't really, everybody said it would rain eventually, but I didn't, didn't see that. And I took off and decided on a road trip around Alaska. And I had set out some endeavors for myself of the endurance and suffering variety that I tend to enjoy. And I'd had some great skis, some great runs, a few great paddles. 
And I arrived in Anchorage a little earlier than I had planned to meet up with my friend Nate, who was finishing up his hunting guide season. And our plan was to continue down the Canadian Rockies on more of these such endeavors that he also enjoys. And since I had some extra time, I knew I had time for one more adventure. And a friend of mine uh, lent me a cabin down in Seward, uh, where I decided to go down and do a loop around the Harding Ice Field. I had read that there was a string of peaks that uh, was exceptionally beautiful, especially in the fall. And so that morning, I took off. I knew I had to beat the weather that was coming in the afternoon. And I'd made it through the first three peaks. And as I was coming down, I took a drink of my water, uh, only to realize that it was empty, which was odd because I hadn't drank very much that day. And I knew I filled it when I left. And this is what my friend Nate would say is uh, the beginning of a series of unfortunate decisions. I felt that I had some ways to go. But I also knew that the weather wasn't going to come in for a little while longer, so I took a moment to buy a creek to fill up my water again, and when I opened my pack, I found that the reason it was empty was because it had emptied all the contents into my backpack, so all my warm clothes were now very wet. And being from Montana and not having seen rain here in Juneau yet, I still had a lot of down, and it was very useless at this moment. So I decided that... Given the circumstances, I only had time for two more peaks. So I took off, made it down the bottom of the first one, just about when the snow started to come in, and shortly followed by the wind. And that combination on the ice field can make it pretty much impossible to see any definition or any idea of where you are. And I made my way over to the side and the rocks of the moraine, which is arguably harder to travel, but at least visible. And I made my way back to the pass and knew that I just needed to run down as fast as I could. And as I parted, got out the bottom of the clouds, I looked over to Exit Glacier, which was beautiful blue, that beautiful blue of a freshly washed glacier with a downpour. And as I'm going down, I see this beautiful waterfall Mulan, just waterfall pouring right out the side of the glacier. And I knew immediately I had to go take a photo of it. The problem was is that there's a big gap and a very soft terrain to get to it, so I had to go all the way back down and come back up to get to that point. And as I got back up, being tired and fairly dehydrated at this point, I decided I would just drop my pack because it would be lighter and I would leave all my climbing equipment in there because I was just going a little ways up the glacier. So I walked up, I got just about to the waterfall and I took a sidestep to admire my progress. And that sidestep went out from underneath me and took both my feet, and I was sliding down the glacier faster than I could control. And while I had been smart enough to at least bring my ice axe with me, it didn't do very much good. As I tried to pound in for a self-arrest, it bounced me off the ice, and I took a fall around 30 feet into a pressure ridge, which stopped me quite suddenly. I felt my ribs, felt everything, made sure nothing was broken. Okay, I made it out. I'm all right. I sat up, could feel blood and tatters of clothes, made my way back down the glacier, grabbed my pack, and that's when I started watching myself walk all the way across this braided river. And I came to when I was sitting in the car, and a person in the car next to me asked if I was all right. To which I replied, yeah, I've been worse. I drove back to the cabin and drank a few glasses of water, I was very dehydrated and immediately had to pee. Only that's not what came out. Deepest, 
dark as purple blood because I had in fact fractured my kidney and I was bleeding out. I made my way to the hospital. It was dark at this point, it was late. I knock on the door and nobody answers. I look inside and I realize that all the lights are dark. And some part of me decides that maybe I'm at the wrong door. So I walk around the back side. It's a brick building, lights flickering. Feels like it's out of some zombie movie. And I managed to walk in the emergency entrance where there's a few staff standing on one side. It's on my right side, which looks perfectly normal. I walk into the front desk and nobody's at it. Nobody makes any motion or move to come over and see me. And I fold over the front counter. One of the staff making their way to some other part of the building, uh, clearly not interested in checking on me immediately, maybe thinking I was drunk or something. As they're walking by, they say, can I help you? And as he passes to my left side and sees the graded self that is my left side at that moment, he goes, oh, can I help you? What's going on? What happened? I say, oh, I fell. And he goes, oh, has somebody seen you yet? I was like, did you not just watch me walk in the building? To which, when he asked if I could help, I apparently had some sense of snarkiness because I said, no, I'm just resting. It's fine. I managed to get help, managed to get back. And the flight that took me to Anchorage, the helicopter, when I told the pilot that I had fallen on Exit Glacier and apparently fractured my kidney, he said, oh, where at? I broke my leg there a few years ago. <laughs> I guess... I guess so many people who come to Alaska come seeking something, something uncharted, something adventurous, sometimes outside, sometimes within themselves. It's part of what makes it such a magical place, part of what makes the community what it is. Everybody's seeking something that's just a little unknown. Thank you. is worth it to me Sane honesty This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on November 8th, 2022. The theme was uncharted territory. Proceeds went to the Juno Refugee Relief Fund and live music was performed by Taylor Vidic. Join us on December 13th for our December Mudrooms edition on Holiday Hullabaloo. Sign-ups for stories are now open on our website, mudrooms.org, or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Juno Mudrooms. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Rich Moniak, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and Jane Hale. And I'm Crystal Briette. Have a good night. We'll wait patiently, aiming straight for it. But now what we need Is a little rain on our face from you, sweet Sane honesty